CGIR policy seminar series on strengthening food systems, and it focuses on payment for ecosystem services. And it's supported by the Federal Ministry of, for Economic Cooperation and Development. As we all know, farmers provide a range of ecosystem services beyond producing food. They include carbon storage, pollination, as well as cultural and supporting services. But these farmers, pastoralists, fishermen, fisherwomen, they're seldom compensated for the ecosystem services they provide beyond food. And often they're not very well compensated for the food that they produce. So this is a, a big challenge because when farmers have, you know, cannot make uh, meat ends and cannot feed their families, they might uh, potentially destroy ecosystem services or degrade their land and water resources. To address that, a system or an approach called payment for ecosystem services has been introduced several decades ago. There is some evidence that these payments can diversify smallholder farmer earnings and also incentivize more sustainable farming and land management practices. However, while a number of such services or such schemes have been implemented around the world, they have by and large not gained sufficient traction to really make a difference for both farm incomes and environmental outcomes. So in the coming 90 minutes, we will examine past and current ecosystem service payment schemes targeted at smallholders across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We hope, I hope you'll hear about their effectiveness, about their impacts, and explore how such schemes could be taken forward for larger impacts, and also really how these schemes can build greater resilience in food systems. Following an opening set of presentations, we will take both virtual and in-person questions, and we'll have a panel to discuss those. So the big questions I think that we hope to deal with today are what does it take for these PS schemes to work for both nature and poor people? And what can we do differently you know, to really make a difference? So now I guess we'll get started. And without further ado, I would like to introduce Joost Swinnen, the Director General of the International Food Policy Research Institute and the Managing Director of the CGR Systems Transformation Science Group. Uh, prior to joining CGR, you had an illustrious career uh, in Belgium and also at the World Bank and the European Commission. So without further ado, Joa, please I'll invite you here to the stage to make a few opening remarks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Claudia. I think you already gave uh, some very good opening remarks. So. Let me keep it very brief because we have an, an excellent lineup of speakers here. I think the topic of today is really important, and I'm also happy that it's really part of our engagement with, with BMZ, the seminar series, which I think a really important topic of, of, of resilience overall. And so it's kind of very fitting, I think, that we could do it here at Tropentag today, where we are together with our German colleagues 
uh, and we have a fantastic program here. Well, we, they have a fantastic program. We are just here part of the program. And I uh, once again want to congratulate the organizers for that. Let me get back briefly on the payment for ecosystem services, why I think it's so important. It's one of these things um, which should really be at the heart of our food systems transformation, a food, land, and water systems transformation, because it's really all about externalities and dealing with it. And so we know that in order to transform these systems, we really have to deal with it. We have to deal with greenhouse gas emissions, with biodiversity loss, et cetera. And our normal market um, or market systems, prices, et cetera, do not work very well for that. Now, it's one of these things, as an economist, you can derive a perfectly uh, theoretical result on this and things that should work very, very well. You can estimate what the value is. You can uh, calculate what the payment is that you have to give for that. And then you can basically provide an incentive scheme of making it work. What we see is that something which works very well theoretically on the blackboard doesn't work very well in practice. And so one of the points that Claudia already made is that it's not used as much as we want it to happen. And why is that? Because it's very hard to implement. Measurement is a problem. Enforcement is a problem. Information related to it is a problem. And so the big issue is how can we implement these schemes, which theoretically would be a wonderful solution for many of the problems that we face. And so I look very much forward today to hear from our researchers and our uh, practitioners who are working with these things, implementing them. And I think really it's where we have we can learn from success stories. How does it work? How can we expand it? How can we scale it up within countries and to other countries in the world? Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for those opening remarks. And yes, economists are very interested in those schemes, but very clearly we can't make them happen. So I'd like now to introduce our first uh, speaker, Dr. Marcela Quintero. She is the Associate Director General Research Strategy and Innovation for the Alliance of Biodiversity in Seattle. And she's a Senior Director in the Food Systems Transformation Science Group. Okay, CGR needs to shorten some titles. And she also leads the CGR Initiative on Agroecology. So that's three lines. Uh, with a background in ecology and agronomics, she has worked for more than two decades on payment for ecosystem services, so we have the expert in the room, watershed management, environmental impacts in agricultural landscapes, and adoption of determin and determinants of sustainable land use-based options with a focus on Latin America and the Caribbean. And she will provide an overview presentation on PS. What is it? How do they work? What kind of evidence do we have? So please, Marcella, come up to the stage and we look very much forward to your slides. They will be managed uh, externally and you'll just say next slide, please. Okay, Over there. okay thank you again. Okay, let, let me start by saying that payment for ecosystem services start emerging more than 20 years ago. And I was very young when I started working on that. And in that moment, there was not a lot of evidence on what could work and what uh, will not work with payment for ecosystem services. After now 20 years or more of evidence that has been emerging since 2025, where we start seeing most of the scientific publications, now we have lessons learned. And this is a summary, what I'm going to present today, on some emerging evidence on what can help to make PES effective on the ground. Next, thanks. <laughs> so 
so uh, Ingrid, uh, Claudia was saying what is PS, uh, how, uh, and etc. So on the what, I don't want to get into the details of the definition. Here, what I wanted to call your attention is that in the left side, you can see the two most uh, popular definitions on payment for ecosystem services. There are sometimes debate uh, among the authors of, this, of these definitions. But here, for me, what is important to highlight is that these two definitions highlight three main things. One is that payment for ecosystem services at the end is the negotiation of voluntary willingness to engage, engage in payment for ecosystem services. So it means that there has to be agreement and negotiation between the service providers and the service payers. And also it has to be conditioned to some specific land use decisions that are uh, linked to the delivery of a specific ecosystem services. So it means that in the practice payment for ecosystem services is not just the result of, of having you know, the market, uh, the, the, the supply and demand forces of a market acting there, but it's really uh, the result of having high efforts on facilitating reaching those agreements between ecosystem services and ecosystem services providers and, and payers. And also it's a lot about building trust between those actors. And it's also about reciprocity. Uh, around those ecosystem services provision. And also I want to, to say here that payment for ecosystem services born as a mechanism for environmental outcomes. Yes, it can deliver other co-benefits, like for example, contributing to sustainable livelihoods or to increase income for farmers, but the main objective since the beginning has been on environmental outcomes. Next one. So now, as I said, uh, we now have literature that is providing evidence on what is working and on the how, what we should look into if we want to implement payment for ecosystem services based on the empirical evidence and the scientific studies that are emerging now regarding the effectiveness of payment for ecosystem services. So if based on that literature and that evidence that are, this is, let's say, more or less the different phases that have to be accomplished if we want to implement a payment for ecosystem services scheme. And here I want to call the attention that 20, 25 years ago, we were not calling a, uh, giving a lot of attention to some uh, key specific aspects that are, uh, that are important at the moment of assessing the feasibility of these schemes. One is land tenure status. The second thing is the willingness to pay and the willingness to accept those payments. And the other one is the institutional or organizational capacity. Next one. And then after the feasibility, these are other key aspects that we have learned that are super important at the moment of implementing PS schemes. And let me start with the, the, the box on the right that is on implementation. And I was saying before that having a former sort of organizational structure, whatever we want to implement this payment for ecosystem services, it's important because at the end, at the moment of implementing this, you need an organizational structure that is going to be able to formalize arrangement between ecosystem services and ecosystem users and providers. You need to collect the payments, you need to disburse those payments, and also you need a structure that is solid enough to do monitoring and enforcement of that system. So that's why having a present organization, whatever this is going to be applied is already like a plus because then you can build that onto that. On the design uh, is key to understand what are the funding horizons of the payments. 
And for that, it's important to know what are the sources of those funding resources, could be private or public. Right now, the latest review of payment ecosystem services have shown that, for example, in Latin America, the main source of funding for PES are public funding, while in Africa is mainly private and mainly from abroad, the countries. And the other thing that is important, next one, is that in the design, uh, in theory, as, as Joe was saying, it's important to understand what is the cost of providing that ecosystem services, to understand where those services are provided the most, so we target the payments to those areas. But in reality, what I put here in these red uh, uh, squares is that these are the things that sometimes in the design are missing or are not uh, built solidly. And also in the implementation, in the reviews and in the most recent reviews, you see that the less in the we are doing in the implementation is in the monitoring and enforcement. So there is a gap there if we want to support payment for ecosystem services. Next one. So regarding the importance of public funding, this is just an example I, ha I have personally been uh, following uh, through uh, the past years. And here, I just wanted to highlight that we analyzed what were the bottlenecks to have public funding into payment for ecosystem services in this country. So in 2023, 2013 and 2015, these were the cases that we analyzed that were existing in that moment. These are payment for water services. And in 2021, after a law on ecosystem services was created, the cases increased massively. And it was basically because that law allowed uh, water supply companies to collect payments from the water users to be uh, dedicated as payment for ecosystem services. And this triggered the amount of payment for ecosystem services in the country. Next one. So in terms of what we know about environmental performance of payment for ecosystem services, it's very difficult with the evidence that we have now with the exception of carbon uh, projects to know if are effective in delivering the ecosystem service. Because what is being monitored in these systems is the land use decision that was linked to the payment because it was believed that that land use decision was good for the delivery of the ecosystem services. So for example, more forest is going to deliver more water. These kind of assumptions were made. The problem is that some of the payment for ecosystem services selected those land uses uh, to condition the payment not necessarily based on solid uh, evidence. So this is something where I think research can advance more and make sure that these payment for ecosystem services are founded on solid evidence regarding what land use management options are going to be paid as proxy of the delivery of the ecosystem services. The other thing is that, uh, next one, is in terms of poverty performance. So in terms of poverty performance, even though this is not the main objective of this payment for ecosystem services, the reality is that some agency has been supporting payment for ecosystem services also as an option to alleviate poverty. There are not many impact studies around that, but there is already some emerging, uh, some emerging evidence that is showing that at least there are no negative effects on welfare and also there are more positive impacts on livelihoods, especially on financial aspects. And uh, where we don't know much are in the trade-off between income and other livelihood dimensions that could have effects on inequality in the territories where we, we implement these schemes. Next one. Yeah, so to finalize, 
I want to focus here on where we can focus uh, the technical and research assistance for payment for ecosystem services. So as I was saying, uh, there is a need, especially for payment for ecosystem services related to watershed services on providing evidence on what is the impact of the selected land use practices on the actual ecosystem services that are targeted by the, by the schemes. In, car in carbon projects, uh, there is still a gap, especially in the South, for having models uh, for, of soil organic carbon because the existing models has not been validated in, in the South. The greenhouse gas calculators also uh, are based on information that has not been produced in the tropics, for example. So sometimes the emissions that are estimated are above uh, the, 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 the real, the measurements that has been taken in those countries. So with this, I want to finalize. Thank you, uh, Claudia, and looking forward for the conversation. Thanks. Excellent. And I think the research strategy around the future of PS schemes will be definitely a topic for discussion. So we hope to hear the remaining points at, at that stage. So we now have our second speaker, Dr. Felicitas Röhrig. She's a senior policy officer Division of Sustainable Agriculture Supply Chains, International Agriculture Policy, Agriculture Rural Development, Innovation at BMZ. Okay, the titles are no different, I realize. Um, and yeah, just uh, Felicitas also has a long career. Um, she was working as a uh, climate policy analyst at SIAT with the CGR CCAFs of Climate Change, Agriculture and Food Security Program, and also with the Potsdam Institute for climate impact research, which is close by here. Uh, and she'll, I think, explain or uh, gives us an overview of a new uh, PS type scheme uh, that the, the ministry is considering or has started to implement. So we very much look forward uh, to hear about that program. So Felicitas, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Claudia. And actually, I'm happy to tell you that we realize our titles are too long. So our division is now called Agriculture Rural Development. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, first of all, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the BMZ for the opportunity to jointly discuss benefits and challenges of payment for ecosystem services with such an esteemed and distinguished panel of experts today. Our agriculture and food systems are expected to provide access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food for all. And yet, more than 3.1 billion people are actually unable to afford a healthy diet. At the same time, shocks of different kinds like the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate crisis, or the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine and its implications on global food supply are increasingly putting pressure on the livelihoods of the people working on 570 million farms worldwide. The challenges ahead for agriculture and food systems are enormous. And in order to address them, we require a fundamental transformation, a paradigm shift away from a one-dimensional system that only produces food to a system that provides multifunctional services. Smallholder farmers in the global south make, significant, make a significant contribution to the preservation of ecosystems and the provision of multifunctional services. But in the current system, they are not rewarded for it. So we need to find adequate compensation mechanisms for farmers to keep up and further incentivize sustainable practices 
that contribute to maintaining ecosystem services. We want to find mechanisms that allow farmers to generate an income, not only from agricultural production, but also from payments for, achieve, for achieving positive externalities. Such a smart income mix can provide farmers, smallholder farmers, with a living income and contribute to both food security and climate protection. And this is why under the German G7 presidency, we launched the Compensation Initiative. This initiative has four overarching goals. First, we want to increase and diversify the income of smallholder farmers. Second, we want to create incentives for climate and nature positive agricultural practices. Third, we want to contribute with the initiative to the diversification of financial instruments for payment for ecosystem services schemes. And fourth, we want to also mobilize more international public and private climate finance for small-scale agriculture. So in contrast to what Marcella presented before, our initiative actually has a pro-poor design. So it's going further than just uh, looking at environmental benefits from PES schemes. Now, in the first year of the initiative, we developed a policy brief through which we identified three priority areas of intervention. Firstly, to promote technological innovations and redesigned payment, redesign payment mechanisms for ecosystem services so that trading of ecosystem service conservation credits can become competitive in smallholder agriculture. Secondly, we want to increase public and private investments, for example, through blended finance programs to scale up successful payment for ecosystem services programs. And thirdly, we want to support public policy reform in order to create the right enabling environment and establish national frameworks for the implementation of PES schemes. So for us with this initiative, it is about actually moving towards implementation. For this last year, we launched a partnership with IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, and provided 15 million euros to pilot different compensation schemes in three um, partner countries. In Brazil, a project is being implemented to establish a financing system for incentivizing deforestation-free value chain. In Ethiopia, they are building a system for carbon certification in agroforestry systems. And in Lesotho, they are developing a national fund for payment for ecosystem services. And under the same partnership with IFAD this year, we have some more exciting collaborations starting with the rubber banks smallholder agroforestry finance program. <laughs> okay, I'm at the end of my speech. <laughs> Thank you. I expect I expect we'll we'll be getting a lot of questions. This is a new program. I think a lot a lot of great opportunities, proactive for pro poor and also trying to improve environmental outcomes. So you'll get a lot of questions after, so you will, can answer them right then. We'll now move to our virtual speakers and we have three virtual speakers, which is why we have to keep on time. Um, Stephen Laurie is our first virtual speaker. He's a senior associate in C4's equity, gender and tenure research program. And he does research on the social, economic and ecological effects of forest rights devolution the impacts of land rights, formalization on agricultural investments and productivity, and tenure factors affecting adoption of forest landscape restoration practices in Africa, among other topics. 
He has spent time in many different uh, locations, Wisconsin's Lent Medicine Land Tenure Center, Ford Foundation, and many other locations. And yeah, I'll hand over to Steve for the for the next talk. Please, Steve, over to you. Thank you, Thank you Claudia, and good morning to everyone from New York. Uh, if we could have the first slide. Next slide. So uh, living under Claudia's draconian timekeeping practices, I've decided to summarize everything in my first slide. Uh, anytime I have left over, I'll go into further depth with other slides. So this is really the argument uh, summarized. Uh, Red plus and PES interventions in community forestry, I want to emphasize community forestry, have performed poorly overall, and the evidence pretty much support that, supports that. And when I say poorly, I'm speaking to both ecological and social outcomes. Uh, our main initiatives, programmatic initiatives, including Bond Challenge, for instance, really emphasizes that investments should have jointly positive social and, e and ecological outcomes. So this is key. Uh, now, my next point is, I think, the most important theme, really the most important thing I want to say here to our audience, which is that forest communities, many forest communities, most, I'll say most forest communities, know what they're doing. You know, the, these are the people who do manage these complex social and uh, ecological systems. But local management and stewardship systems are not acknowledged in inter intervention design sufficiently. Okay. The importance of social goals is lauded, but the roles of, of local social institutions and priorities are largely overlooked or discounted by Red Plus and PES planners. And this being the case is the beginning of, of uh, a programmatic failure or lack of uh, certainly expected outcomes. Okay, and I want to speak a little bit here uh, about an important contextual factor, which is uh, you know, communities manage extremely complex socio-ecological systems for multiple purposes. And we're aware of this, timber, non-timber forest products, water regulation, already environmental service, agricultural sustainability, biodiversity, environmental services, cultural identity, and social solidarity. Successful stewardship is based, and we see evidence of this in many, many places, on an ethic of care, where there's an understanding that there's a relationship between social well-being and the well-being of our environment. There's profound intrinsic knowledge of the context, uh, the ecological and social institutional context within which people live and work. And this is the arena of decision-making action uh, that's affected. And outsiders have a hard time understanding this. Uh, and it's even worse when they don't make the effort to understand it. And then the third element in effective stewardship is agency. That is the ability to apply your knowledge and in ways that are uh, respectful of the, of the environmental context. And of course, this is very much dependent on having secure rights. Okay. Now where good stewardship outcomes are already present, and this kind of points to a conundrum with respect to PES design and its focus on incentives, the carbon balance may be socially and ecologically optimal and accommodating forest management and payments regimes for carbon additionality may be disruptive. And in fact, there's evidence that suggests that payments 
potentially in some contexts uh, undercut resilience of systems already in balance. Now the additionality principle, which you know in the forestry sector you're being rewarded for additional carbon produced that would not have otherwise been produced without the payment, the additionality principle, ironically, uh, rewards deforesters. That's a rough term here, and that's you know many drivers of of uh, deforestation, but rewards deforesters for purposes of discussion while excluding conservators, conservers. This is perceived locally in many settings as socially unacceptable. And we're seeing evidence of a response to this, for instance, as suggested by the recent studies of uh, some of the Vera projects uh, undertaken by some colleagues of mine and, and publicized in The Guardian, that this, uh, this has led to uh, 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 payments in context where there's been reduced additionality that might have been expected because people are managing successfully. They've been included, they've been registered as part of the program. Importantly, uh, another contextual factor that the lack of market-facing institutions emboldens or can embolden rent-seeking behavior on the part of intermediaries, that is those who market carbon credits and, and in some cases forests. We have to remind ourselves that in many settings, the underlying ownership of forest land is in the hands of the state. And so buyers are looking naturally to look to the legally, statutorily recognized owner of forest. And we've seen, uh, we might say, some perverse policy results in this regard. The jury state ownership of forest land positions governments for payment capture. So okay. that's this is okay. excellent. Yes. Okay. Let's perfect. move on to the next slide, or is that the end of the um, time? No, this was the end. You did the right thing perfectly. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. There's a lot more information, and all these presentations will be online and can be shared, but uh, we want some discussion after. So we'll move now to our second um, online participant. And now we are basically moving into deep into Africa. We have Amos Vekesa uh, with us. He's a carbon specialist with the Global Evergreening Alliance, where he's responsible for designing carbon projects, quality assurance, including validation and certification of commitments. And he handles the M&E, which we've heard is very difficult, in six African countries, including Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda. Um, yeah, and we'll hear, I think the latest project he's working on focuses not on avoiding deforestation, but on planting new trees, which is easier, uh, easier because of these whole social challenges, uh, at least some of the social challenges we've just heard from Stephen, they don't apply. And I also really so happy that he's here because he was deeply involved in the very first 2009 carbon project um, that, that started in 2009 in Africa and Kenya, and that's where we have engaged together. So I'm really glad uh, that we have Amos with us, telling us from his very deep and very long-term experience with payment for ecosystem services linked uh, to carbon markets. So over to you, Amos. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I would like just to share a few slides about the experiences of this project, the key features, and the challenges 
and the lessons learned. You move to the next slide. Uh, so these projects, they are key features that we, we experienced in developing them and implementing and offering carbon credits to communities, smallholder farmers. Uh, when you're doing these projects, you need to observe opportunities and uh, the land that is eligible for restoration to give food security and also provide livelihood to the communities. Uh, you need an approach of collaborative. Uh, if you work alone, it's very hard. You need an investor, a project developer, and the communities to implement. Then in terms of additionality, uh, you need finance, uh, you need experts, uh, you need uh, money to break the barriers there and sequester more carbon. The area that you are working should be scalable. You, you need to scale to other areas. You start small, bringing a uh, few instances, then roll out. You need to uh, use local resources to be cost efficient and technologies. And then you need to uh, provide activities that space the carbon to be multiple so that farmers don't just focus on carbon credits. And then the policies, uh, when we started projects, the policies were not strong as today because we didn't have climate uh, instruments that we based on. We are just basing on UNFCC uh, tools and, and Kyoto Protocol. Next slide. Uh, this is the Kenya Agriculture Carbon Project that we started 2009 uh, with finances from World Bank Biocarbon Fund investors. And it was piloted in Western Kenya, area that is potential for agriculture around the Lake Victoria region. That was degraded heavily. Uh, it, it, we, we aim to produce uh, with smallholder farmers who are peasant to have food security on the table, but also participate in carbon payments. Uh, we used a methodology that was developed because we didn't have a methodology at the moment. So part of the biocarbon fund helped us to develop the methodology, which we refer as sustainable agricultural land management under various standards that is already inactive now because there is a new one that has replaced it. Uh, these were the practices that we farmers choose because they are local, they know them, uh, including soil organic uh, inputs with mulching, compost, and agroforestry. We worked with the 45,000 hectares, 60,000 households, uh, aggregated in the groups of 1,700 farmer groups. Uh, this, the yields increased in the first year 20%, and the following year they doubled. And uh, the amount of carbon that was uh, uh, targeted for 30 years was 1.9. Right now, they have already reached a million tons and, 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 and verified uh, five times. And farmers get carbon credits, and the trees are there, and other benefits are there. Next. Um, and this is I'm the restoration. Almost, I, suggest, I suggest you skip the second project and go to the challenges because I think those are of interest. Okay, and the, the challenges slide. include the, the, the costs of starting the projects high, requiring an investor, the MRVs, most local areas they don't have data, national issues, tools are complicated, technical capacity required, 
there is issue of reversal uh, requires to monitor and also plan more trees to buffer. The issue of certification, getting a standard methodology is difficult and also costly, and some stringent will have low carbon credits. And policy and standards, which I've already uh, mentioned. The last one, uh, lessons learned include um, governance is an issue. Uh, farmers should be organized in groups. Extension services should be locally and digitalized. Uh, benefit sharing is, should be aligned to the needs of the farmers. Uh, should have a good business case, uh, which is transparent and inclusive. And then the MRV, we need to pilot and, and uh, have it be digital and then be in the context specific. Uh, it requires so, uh, to, to plant more trees so that you buffer because most trees are used also for other needs. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and we hope in the Q&A to learn about his current project that focuses more on new tree. So new tree planting, which is really easier to manage to some extent. And also for our online audiences, if you do have questions, please note them down. We have someone in this room who will try to receive them. And so we'll bring in questions both from online and from the audience in the room. But before we come to the Q&A, we have our last speaker. We're moving now to South Asia, to India. Uh, where Dr. Pranab Chowdhury, a founding member of the Center for Land Governance, who also works with the Foundation for Ecological Security, which is an organization that almost all CGR centers have one or another linkage with. Um, and, you know, working in these systems, he focuses on policy analysis and capacity building of stakeholders, again, deeply focused with land rights, rural tender governance, forest rights, livelihoods, and sustainable development. So please, Dr. Pranab, over to you to understand how you are approaching that same topic. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Claudia. Uh, thank you, CGR and BNZ, uh, for providing us this opportunity. Uh, this presentation uh, is from the supply side context, uh, mostly from the perspective of the community and commons through the voices of civil society. And we are trying to provide, you know, a perspective that uh, we have learned from our last two years of uh, closure engagement that includes review of what is happening around the PS market and also looking at what is happening in India, which is resulting into a project that we are trying to implement in two states of India. Next slide, please. Uh, the way we look at uh, the commons, uh, because here we look at uh, not only the farmers, but also the part-time and full-time forest dwellers, fishers, livestock graziers, who depends on a village ecosystem, which is typically a landscape mosaic, having common land, uh, no, including pasture, forest, and wetland, interacting with private farmlands. So this whole mixed terrier regime, which remains individual, commons, and sometimes also uh, the, uh, the gap blurring between them when the rent private land we also become commons. We see them interacting with each other in a system, which is really very critical for our know, uh, locating PES uh, the discourse, because this system provides livelihood opportunities, which are not only, you know, which we see as uh, income streams or economic opportunities in terms of income from you know, the value chains in employment for, from the working in these landscapes, all, as well as cost savings through, through whole agroecological paradigms where the local 
water shed services, pollination and nutrition services, subsidize the farming and make them resilient. At the same time, we also see around additional dividends in, some, in terms of certification and PS market coming in. And we believe all these things happen right from pre-production to post-production across the systems. And in a way, if we don't look at the system and try to look at only carbon or only trees or try to extract something beyond that, it sometimes break, break the resilience and could be detrimental to the system. So, and generating more externality. So that is how we are doing, uh, having the approach. Next slide, please. Uh, we see that when these multiple uh, production services, and we would like to call them as a bundle of production services, which also includes some types of social and cultural spaces in these forest and pastoral commons that communities and women particularly you know, or, uh, enjoy, uh, is coming because of particularly three kinds of uh, connections, which also Steve uh, called about uh, community stewardship. We call the value where the communities, indigenous communities, particularly local communities, they care the forest and be cared by the forest. They live with the forest, they coexist co with the, these commons uh, and all these ecosystems. They have own governance mechanism, which is based on around the local tenure. For example, the Northeast India, where you know, customary community tenure regime still exists and uh, recognized by the constitution. We see that how the feminism, how, how the gender play a critical role and how local institutions come in there to decide how these resources will be governed. And at the same time, the traditional knowledge, particularly if you look at forestry, I think it was discussed a little bit earlier, most of the knowledge around agriculture and forestry that were taught in Indian universities are from West. Whereas a lot of local traditional knowledge systems, ethno-silviculture, the way communities you know, tend forest and harvest forests has not been documented, but this has been critical to maintain the forest. For example, in Northeast India, unlike when whole India has a 20% of forest cover, Northeastern India maintains a 75% of forest cover in spite of you know, the shifting cultivation practices. We see if you don't look at these three things together and the bundling of ecosystem services, sometimes we'll be having risk. And if you do it together, maybe we can address win-win options like community well-being, commons resilience, and climate action. Next slide, please. So to just look back a contest uh, from the field areas that are working in Meghalaya and Odisha, how the system thinking is there. When you look at a forest, the communities just don't look at them as you know, ecosystem services or product. It is, it is their food, medicine, timber, income, water set. And they also look at forests as a space to have the social and recreational space. But at the same time, we see, you know, there has been reducing uh, engagement with forest with uh, uh, trained among youth particularly to move out and not to uh, don't, uh, continue the generational knowledge. And at the same time, there is an extractive actions like stone quarrying, privatization of timber forest and state control coming in. Uh, in terms of forest people relation, uh, the way they look at pests and wildlife damage is quite uh, you know, revealing because they feel that they do also have a share and we should share with them. So the whole principle of coexistence uh, remain there. And in, in terms of governance, not only we see that the governance at a, as a village level decentralized, but at a multiple village, village level, we also see a kind of uh, tenure regime where multiple villages access a common space for agriculture or uh, for forest extraction. And we see how there is a community individual tenure continuum, which is partially and temporary, you no know, uh, decide the land use, which is, you know, which makes it more resilient. In terms of management, we also see how in Meghalaya, there is a forest pasture farm continuum and how 
there is a grassland uh, based uh, shifting cultivation system called Pobun and how they, they are able to manage the soil uh, quality and soil health while continue to produce the food. But we are seeing increasing in tenure individualization, uh, knowledge erosion in the next uh, generation and also weakening of local governance where state is bringing in new agencies around management, particularly uh, in that context, the payment for ecosystem service scheme in Meghalaya, which has been recently launched with the savings from World Bank project, we see how copybook forestry projects are being premised under external knowledge and control and with limited free and prior income con consent, which is risking the local governance, bringing in new management paradigm, weakening local management and also value system. Similarly, okay. when you look at the, yeah, uh, should I stop here? Yes. Okay, thank you. Okay, it's a very complex set of cases in India where we have these you know, complex societies producing many different ecosystem services. No, but this is excellent. And we will hear more during the Q&A, really focusing on the topics that you as the audience are most interested in. I'd like to invite now our speakers from the room, Marcella, to please join us on the podium and also Felicitas. My understanding is you had to move to another meeting. So Felicitas, if you could join us and Marcella, so please. And we have our, hopefully on the screen, um, our panelists, Stephen, Pranab and, and Amos um, to also answer your questions. And we have a Rovin microphone or two um, yeah, in the room. And of course we have also online questions, but I suggest we start with questions in the room. Some of the takeaways, just for me, were definitely the additionality question. And then the, you know, coming in with approaches that are approved. And for example, for carbon market payments, there's some very uh, specific standards, specific practices, but then they clash with uh, local stewardship and local management practices. That's on the, on the forest or carbon market side. And then of course we have the others, the earlier systems where you, uh, like plant some trees upstream and you improve, you know, reduce sedimentation for hydroelectricity production. Those also have their own challenges. So all of them have challenges. All of them have opportunities. So over to you. Uh, just, just, okay, someone already has a mic. So we'll start with that. And please also uh, introduce your name, name and organization and your question, please. Okay. Um, thank you, Claudia. My name is Imga Jordan, um, Alliance Biodiversity International in CS. I do have a challenge with all the presentations, um, looking into coming from a different sector of home economic sciences, where household work also is not funded. Now, ecosystem service is also a social service where we serve a community. We serve our own family part of livelihood. Um, I'm wondering how we do the quality assurance here of that particular service, which we want to gratify where we want to pay for. Mm -hmm. So within the family, we have our family members who say it's nice. Now, when it comes to ecosystem service, who is valuing this service? Yeah. And how do we monetize it in the way that we pay okay. it? MRV, I think, good. We have a question in front, and then we'll see what else, what other questions we have. Also, if you have a specific person you would like to address your question, feel free to mention that. Hello, everyone. Christoph Garnot, Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and University of Kassel. I have a question. So I think we have seen nicely these, these case studies around the globe, and I think that's all very helpful to, to have them in place. But I think also what we need is a much bigger approach to get this climate, these, these services 
adapted really on a regular basis and to be implemented not only on single case studies but on a widespread mode and i would like to ask you all on what kind of mechanisms do you see to to really get this to a widespread implementation that we are and where should the money come from because i think we see this also in the climate debate with the bridgetown initiative for instance that there are mechanisms to bring money to these bigger initiatives which fund these kind of services, but I guess this is also still needed for, for these ecosystem services, right? Okay, there was a long question. So you're looking for, you're asking the source of finance or the mechanism for scaling or both? Both, both. okay, good. <laughs> um, maybe one more question or, okay, there's a gentleman in the middle and then we'll uh, check if we have some online questions. Oh, there was a gentleman in the back and there's a gentleman in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So hello, David Baxter from Helvetas Intercorporation GGMBH, also speaking on behalf of Helvetas Swiss Intercorporation. And my question is quickly, what do you think need to be the minimum safeguards to put in place to prevent that the potential negative effects of weakening local governments are not happening? So what? basically safeguard minimum criteria to avoid negative risks actually becoming reality. And that, that's negative social outcomes yeah. or yeah. E economic, social, political. I mean, there's a whole set of potential risks. Okay. As we'll do a sweep of people in the room, there was a gentleman here and no, no, but the gentleman here in the, just be in front of the gate here or whatever. Hello, my name is Kanzorik. I'm from Mongolia. I was interested in two questions. The first one is from Marcella. What do you know any studies focusing on like analyzing what is the success percentage of these pest schemes in the world? Maybe in Sorry, that different... question was for Marcella. Yeah. Okay. Great. And the second question is uh, it's uh, a bit sometimes complexity that uh, for example the ben the ben uh, the person who is sometimes beneficiary of the ecosystem services that they have to pay sometimes uh, these uh, people are also a uh, provider of the ecosystem services so for example a herder in mongolia that sometimes they the governments uh, think that they are the beneficiary because they use the grassland but sometimes in the other hand they are also uh, people who protect the land from other activities so in such case is how this complexity with its beneficiary or provider tackled in these pest schemes. Thank so you. who should answer the second? Um, maybe again, Marcella. Oh, Marcella, okay. <laughs> Mongolian Theater Systems, good. Um, yes, I think we'll hand over uh, to our respondents and we have respondents uh, also obviously online, uh, but as we have Marcella uh, proposed to answer a couple of questions, I'll hand over my mic and yeah. So we have MRV, um, me financial mechanism scaling, minimum safeguards, social safeguards, success rate, and the Mongolian example. Okay, good. So let me start with yours that are more also pressure in my mind. So um, the last one was on, uh, yeah, when is the beneficiary is the user. And there was something in the definition that to me is key and is that, uh, is easier when these payment for ecosystem services are around externalities. So it's around 
uh, an effect, an environmental effect that is produced by someone and affects someone and whoever is get affected is not part of the decision that is delivered in the ecosystem services. So when you, we talk about externalities, you don't have that problem that is the same person. At least is, is, the, is the same owner of the grassland that benefit from the ecosystem service and the land that is also providing the ecosystem service. But if you focus on the externalities, you don't have uh, that problem a lot. And this is especially in the watershed services, uh, which I'm more familiar with. And the other question was on uh, the success percentage. Yes, on the studies that I have seen more recently, mainly from Borner and from Sven Vander, uh, there are some, there are not many impact evaluations, but the few ones are showing some percentages of success. For example, percentage on, on reducing the deforestation rate in Mexico or in Costa Rica. So there is success in most of the cases that has been documented now with impact assessment, but that uh, percentage of success is very relevant at the local level, but at the national uh, scale probably is not that relevant because you reduce, for example, the deforestation in a given municipality and is relevant there, but when you put that at the scale of the country, probably not that relevant. So this is mainly what the numbers are, are saying basically for forest conservation. From other services like water services, I think this is a big gap, knowing exactly what is being delivered in terms of uh, watershed services. Okay. Um, thank you. I will take the question from Christoph Gornot. Thank you very much for the question, um, which was about mechanisms for scale and also the sustainability and funding. Um, these are exactly the, the two points that we are trying to address with the compensation initiative. So um, one thing is the mechanism for scale. So we are trying to design projects ideally that are add-on projects to already existing schemes where we can where, where a large amount of farmers already being reached, where a, a functioning um, mechanism exists where we then can add a, a payment for ecosystem schemes component. That is one thing. But then of course, with regards to the funding, we really also want to explore different sources of financing. And here we're working on a, a, a variety of pilot projects. One, of course, where we just provide our ODA money, our overseas development aid funds that are then being spent, but that's not sustainable in the long term. So we are now working um, with a project together with the Rabobank where we want to provide our funds as a first loss equity to leverage significant amounts of private sector capital to then finance the initial um, the initial setup of agroforestry schemes. That's one thing. And then in the third um, area that we're also working together with the World Bank, uh, we paid into the uh, Food Systems 2030 Trust Fund um, where we are actually promoting the agenda of repurposing agriculture subsidies. So um, agriculture subsidies are actually a multi-billion opportunity for food systems transformation. And we're working with the, with the World Bank here to see how public um, government money at national level, so agriculture subsidies can also be used, set up as funding sources for payment for existing services schemes at a national level. So here there's like all different sorts of funding sources that we're looking at. And of course, then they are both ticking the box of reaching scale because it's set up in, a, in an institutional environment and they have sustainable funding sources behind. Yeah, 
Excellent. So we'll move now to our online presenters to answer the questions that are not yet answered. One is on the minimum social safeguards and one on MRV. I know Amos has a lot of experience with MRV systems, measurement systems and social safeguards. I think all of you can cover. So, but let's start with Amos with MRV and maybe his, um, his experience on, on social safeguards and then we, Stephen and, and Pranab probably can also come in on that. So please over to you, Amos. Uh, huh. On so, social so. safeguards, we follow the environmental standards or, or carbon international standards, which have a lot of social safeguards in the process of developing the project. And locally also farm, farmers have participatory approaches in terms of community engagement, uh, stakeholder engagement and consenting. Decision making is done locally by the communities and laws are also provided to safeguard um, the, the communities. So there are a lot of safeguards and also projects are in line with sustainable development goals. So there are many social safeguards and uh, environmental safeguards in place in this project. With MRVs to make it context specific mm -hmm. uh, to the community, uh, make sure that is 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 can be applied within the community, can be digital also. I think that's how, what has made it robust and uh, reduced the costs and also the social modeling. Uh, for example, the soil carbon project. We could not do direct measurement because uh, the, the money will be over with, and, and there will be no extra money to monitor. So we used modeling approaches like the Rothschild model. Thank you. And Amos, as we have you talking right now, can you tell me, let's say in your latest carbon project where you're planting trees, um, so it's not avoided deforestation, um, and so how much does a farmer get per hectare per year or over 10 years? If you could just give us a number, I think that would be useful for the audience. Uh, that's that's uh, You can hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, we, uh, we, we would like to pay farmers like six to $10 uh, that is the the money which can help them to be motivated uh, to plant more trees and maintain them for a long period of time. So we are introducing new trees in the new areas. Um, and we are using uh, forestation, reforestation, revegetation approaches. So uh, the co uh, prices of carbon also uh, motivates farmers uh, to plant and some also pre-financed so that they are motivated and later they are paid and compensated and they have other multiple benefits uh, for either like cocoa farming, they, 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 they process cocoa for export and, and uh, for other standards which are uh, organic cocoa. So it's like a multiple benefits and carbon is core benefit to that. Yeah, so, so we often call it charismatic carbon. So the carbon payment itself is extremely low. We talk about one hectare. So the really the co-benefits from extension services, other livelihood opportunities that are coming with those schemes are actually the ones that transform 
um, can you know contribute to resilience of, of food systems. So I think it was good to hear that. And maybe Stephen or Pranab, do you want to say a bit more on um, social safeguards before we hand over to our online yes, questions? Uh, okay, uh, please. I'd, I'd like to say a few words about Pranab. Or, okay. Yeah. Let me say a few words about safeguards. Um, very important question, but we have to ask, a, I think, a more basic question of safeguards uh, uh, against what? And it's it, typically we're taking account of uh, potential harm that accompanies uh, uh, potential harm that accompanies an intervention, and and that's uh, just say it's problematic, because once again the interventions are being designed on the basis of assumptions about what people need uh, to improve their management, and so the best way of uh, one way of addressing the safeguard question is to more directly think in terms of uh, an investment approach. That is investing in what people need and what they say they need, and not just in terms of uh, pursuit of ecological outcomes, but you know social outcomes as well. A strong community will be an effect will be more effective stewards, and that's how they engage with their environment. Is we're managing our livelihoods in the context of this environmental system. So here's how you can help us. I think that's the, the best way to an, anticipate or sort of mitigate the, 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 the risk of interventions having negative impacts uh, locally. Okay, yep, very, very, very important point. And I think also essential for the whole resilience aspect and potentially yes. for you can yes. strengthen community, um, communities and, and their governance, maybe their institutions. Pr uh, Pranab, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure, sure. See, uh, in the present market, based on our review, but in the carbon market context, we see safeguards are more around market. So if you look at the integrity, quality concerns, they're more around ensuring additionality, leakage and permanence, and less around environmental justice and local social issues. Though, if you find this IVCI, VCMI, you know, this uh, nine core principles, uh, so you see in only one principle, they're talking about safeguard, even similarly, that uh, Microsoft has coming with high quality CDR and also uh, WWF. So where we see there is a intent being shown with a limited uh, extent around uh, into, you know, say, uh, uh, ensuring the safeguards. For example, w, uh, no, this plan vivo in new uh, stream talking about 60% share to the community of the carbon market. But the way we see, and I think Amos was telling also, we see around 20 to 30% price is coming to the community. And also community tenures, community governance is hardly ensured. So present market we see is more tilted towards ensuring investors concern and market concern than the community concern. So which probably something we need to work upon and see how communities uh, you know, concerns are integrated into the market. Yeah. Thank you. I think that is good so that we have, if every project has to show that they have improved uh, social outcomes, community coherence, and that communities' concerns are addressed and not just the environmental concerns. That seems to be um, important criteria. We move to uh, online questions, and I think Charlotte Tabelbrand is going to, to read those for us. Thanks, Claudia. We have a few questions coming in from the IFPRI platform. So the first one um, is from Sadar Siddiqui from Pakistan, from PARC, uh, who's asking, I mean, obviously, you all are talking about smallholder schemes, but nonetheless, is there, the question is, how, how does it vary with regard to farm size? Is there a critical size uh, that works better for, uh, for PES? 
And then we have quite a few questions on carbon, um, not surprisingly. Um, Julius Costis, who's a senior scientist with systems thinking, uh, pricing carbon seems to be a difficult task. How do we price carbon? And then there's a lot of related questions on carbon. I'm, I'm not gonna read all of them. Nick Norbell, who's an economist working with a couple of donor funded projects is asking, um, how do you manage the time lag? If I plant new trees, actual carbon offset will not happen for some years. Can, can credits be paid out simply to fund inputs and technical assistance activities rather than the higher goal of carbon removal? And related to that, um, how do you exclude projects which are not reducing carbon but aim to get credits by not cutting or not polluting, which are not actually in the spirit of carbon reduction programs. And then there was one other very interesting question. Yes, this one comes from Francis Matu, a researcher and agronomist who's wondering, he, he talks about the industry, but I think he's talking about the, the providers of these schemes. How can we most effectively and quickly address the most vulnerable communities being affected by climate change related challenges? So who's deciding where to put these schemes uh, into place? And then if I may, a last question from me for, the, for all the speakers, I think we all know that there are now voluntary markets in the quote unquote global north, which are actually providing, I think, quite significant transfers of resources to, to farmers. So how how do you feel about that um, in you know and and what is the disparity here between the global north and the global south thank you very much there i think very good question including the last one because the largest in terms of volume and everything you know uh, ps schemes are actually in the global north uh, you know us eu etc i mean they have, have a lot of programs that would fall under the generic uh, payment for ecosystem uh, service scheme us conservation reserve program etc Tons of money has been, yeah, a lot of money has been paid to farmers, uh, but somehow, as usual, we have, I mean, we have, you know, more challenges, more complexity, smallholder farmers um, in, in, in low-income countries. Okay, so we got some very interesting questions. Critical farm size. What's the minimum farm size to make a system work? Um, obviously, the focus of this particular um, event is on smallholder farmers because we specifically want to do both environmental and and uh, um, income or poverty reduction outcomes. Um, and that's exactly probably one of the reasons why, you know, uh, EU and US schemes, they deal with very large farms. Uh, and I think there's also some obviously gradient in terms of who benefits and who doesn't. Uh, is there a critical farm size or any farmer with one tree could participate? Who wants to take that uh, online? Amos maybe? Uh, because yeah, I can say, um... We designed the project to even meet the landless. Uh, the, the, the smallest size is 0 0.5 acres, hectares, and uh, uh, to 20, those are smallholder farmers we've experienced with. But we also designed to meet the landless, to include the landless, those who can produce nurseries, uh, those who can uh, sell uh, products like nature-based products, Farmers can also bring their farms together and register as one farm. Many farmers can come together communally and register their farms. So it's about enjoying the landscape uh, ecosystem services rather than individualizing them. Thank you. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Farmers coming together and those whose farms are too small, they do the tree nurseries. So you and ancillary benefits. Uh, can you also take the, uh, the time lag 
um, the, the, I think the point was that the carbon benefits take years to accrue when you plant trees, and but the farmers don't want to wait for 20 or 10 years to actually get their $4 per hectare. So how do you handle the, the time lag in the tree planting projects? Amos, sorry. Yes, uh, in that case, you we, we blend the project to have a business case, to have incomes, livelihoods, and trees. And then there are trees that are mixed short-term benefits, long-term benefits. And also the trees also offer non-tree non product benefits. So farmers will be, you need to make a case that farmers get money other than carbon money, more than even carbon money. So in the first five years of investment of the project, still farmers will be reaping man income annually. And in the 20 years, you develop a, a project, a business, of either cooperative or a group association uh, or mark, uh, link them with of taker and and a company or a milk enterprise so that they get more benefit. They focus on them as they maintain trees for thirty to fifty years. I actually also want to say something to the timeline question. It's one of the uh, challenges that we also very. Um, interested in how to resolve and our collaboration that we're starting with the rubber bank I think is a very interesting one here because the newly set up small ag smallholder agroforestry finance um, is addressing this issue precisely by um, providing loans to farmers and because they are usually so high at risk um, our investment is used as this first loss equity so we basically de-risk the investment um, for other investors to provide the loans to the farmers who can then pre-finance the transition to agroforestry systems. And then once the carbon certification scheme kicks in and they receive the, um, the payments from it, a share is deducted from that, which then pays back the loan. And that's basically um, the idea to, um, to fund the transition to these agroforestry schemes at scale. There was also a question on how can we give credits for not polluting, um, and I guess water is a, is a key source there, so there's a lot of PS uh, schemes around preserving water resources, Kenya, carbon, uh, Kenya Water Fund, um, the schemes, a lot of them in Latin America, um, so, and even the Environmental Trust in Malawi, I think that's a lot to reduce uh, erosion uh, that would affect hydroelectric productivity. Marcella, that's your area also. So can you just say a few words, you know, how do farmers who avoid polluting water resources, I think specifically, yeah, how, how, do, how can they get money or other benefits from such schemes? Uh, I think that's a quick question and it's related with the presentation of Steve when he touched base on this issue of the additionality, right, in the, in the carbon projects where you have to demonstrate that that forest wasn't risk to then receive a payment. But for those that have like a good behavior in terms of forest conservation, then do not apply for carbon credits. So uh, I, I think that's an issue and it's, an, and it's something that has not been resolved in the case of carbon markets. Um, in the case of water services, uh, there is a case, uh, I was very involved in Peru and we had that conversation a lot in the country with the government and with local organizations. And then 
uh, one of the main points is that why people that are not making an effort to conserve are not rewarding for that. So in that moment, uh, the government made a decision to make this new law that I mentioned it, that, that actually that law is not called law for ecosystem services, but it's a law for rewarding for ecosystem services. Uh -huh. So it's to also recognize the good behavior of those that are uh, conserving the, the areas that are producing water. So mm -hmm. uh, that's one way on how that was resolved for mm -hmm. that specific case, but every country is taking a, a different approach, mm -hmm. right? And and if if you go to the concepts that I showed at the beginning, some those the theories are going to say, oh, this is not efficient, right? Because you are just paying for something that is already being delivered. So what is the additionality and so on? But I think it's also a matter of reciprocity. And that's why I was putting that in my first slide. Yes, can I say something uh, in response to Marcelo? Can I, can I add something? Yeah. Uh, to Marcelo. Go ahead. Oh, thanks. No, I, I, I appreciate Marcelo pointing out the Costa Rica example. And I, I sort of my concluding argument is, was, is that, uh, you know, we really, I think at a point where we've got some other ideas out there that enable us to think about how to say re-engineer uh, payment regimes uh, in ways that reward I'm using that word reward conservers, okay? Because this is being overlooked. Uh, the, the, what's what people have achieved by virtue of their long-term investments, the management capacity that they've developed over, you know, many decades, the investments that they've made, really needs to be recognized. Um, and on the other side, incentivizing people are our context or communities where there are some apparently systemic issues around conservation and management, those communities may lack the social institutional kind of conditions to actually respond to an incentive. And when they do, as you pointed out, Marcelo, uh, once the money's gone, it's the end of the story. You know, they, there's a reversion in many settings to past practice. So I think a rethinking that Really, and, and, and we've heard other examples about what that rethinking might involve. It would involve investment uh, as the key term as opposed to payments. Let's invest in local social uh, capacity to manage resources and, and for community well-being. And we see a case in, in Maasai a territory in Kenya where what people wanted in the context of uh, a Red Plus project, they wanted better schools for their children, uh, sanitary facilities for the school kids. That's very much related to persistence to coming to school. Okay, so that, that's an investment in social well-being that will pay off in terms of environmental and other kinds of benefits. Thank you. And just to add one thing, it's 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 a super interesting question and one that also concerns us under the compensation initiative is really this. Um, we have those areas where 
a business case exists where like the carbon uh, credit schemes work and then we have those where there isn't a business case and that's where public money has to come in and that's really the debate that we want to lead so it's a very interesting example that you you're giving of where there was a policy designed to reward ecosystem services yeah. and that's exactly what we also want to have more of a discussion about how can this work and that's where we think for example this whole repurposing public agriculture support um, also has to play a key role to think about where can we reward these kind of activities, where can we reward biodiversity conservation, for example, uh, yes. soil health, um, ke keeping lands intact in, in and so forth. So mm -hmm. that's, that's um, exactly the debate we need to, we need to lead. And Stephen, given um, C4's heavy involvement in carbon and carbon markets and carbon payments linked to um, tropical forests. Did you want to say something about or answering some of those uh, specific carbon questions? Um, yes, uh, the voluntary market question is very important. And this is where a lot of the funding is going. It's private funding and <clears throat> one can it's kind of the Wild West, if you know what I mean. It's sort of like, like there's a lot of cowboys out there. Um, and, you know, I'm seeing some things, and Amos, I'm just thinking of Zambia here, with uh, a recent news report that Zambia was setting aside a significant area, a percentage of the country's area, uh, for offsetting uh, in return for payments by, I think, uh, uh, a Gulf state. You know, so... There are some offsetting issues in the Gulf, as we're aware, as there are elsewhere in the world. Um, and and I was concerned about that. Uh, well, in my mind, issues arise, at, particularly on the social side. Uh, are, is a large area of land that's where there are currently people using the land going to be kind of locked up? Will people be displaced? Will they be rewarded? Um, and, and, and so that's an example. I don't know if, if Amos is in a position to comment, but um, so we need to be alert to, once again, the social impacts, you know, because people manage for social and ecological purposes. Uh, obviously I'm emphasizing that. And when, okay. when yeah, so. Perfect. Amos, did you want to uh, comment on Zambia? And if not, we have a quick second round of questions in the room. Because do you work in uh, Zambia? I had, I had, I had actually the internet. What was the question from Stephen? Uh, he mentioned that there is a potential project where Zambia sets aside part of its country's area um, to, to, as a carbon offset to some emissions that are happening in the Gulf Corporation countries and one or many of them. Are you aware of that project? Of that proposal? No, uh, not really. I worked in Zambia only for six months. Well, okay. The major problem was the minerals in those forests. Uh, so government has set aside that land for mineral to mine in future, because they're also getting Chinese companies to come and mine. So when you do a red project in those areas, you 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 may face yeah. some yeah, challenges from that. Yeah. But right. the case so the Stephen is raising, I'm not aware about, about it. Yeah, we had earlier, of course, similar, you know, programs with biofuels. Uh, it yes. reminds me of some mm -hmm. of those earlier programs. Yes. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, yeah, very quick round, last round. And I think I would like uh, everyone also who now responds to tell us a bit about what should be the research agenda 
I think, you know, with climate change, environmental degradation, we need to do things better. But I think what we've heard here, you know, it's a lot of, I think, frustration and uh, some optimism, but really not. We're not talking about making, we're not going to achieve the level of change that we want to achieve the way we're currently operating. Um, that is at least the message I hear. We, we keep trying, we seem to want to get better, but some of those very recent reports, you know, of greenwashing and even some indigenous populations being ne negatively affected, the social safeguards, because those cowboys from the West are coming in and, you know, are able to sell credits um, and they're not able to, you know, to, to work with existing systems. And then if the existing systems work, there's no rewards. So what does all of that leave us with? So <laughs> I think we don't have the final answer here, but I think it's, so given all of that, what is the research agenda? So that's, I guess, my question to everyone, but we'll also take uh, a few more final questions. I see one question here is, and two here, and okay, here. Your, please short because you've already asked. Yes, um, thank you. Um, I actually have two questions, very short one. What is about, ecosystem services in urban areas, when we look into that the urbanization process is ongoing and more than 50% of the population Perfect. is done. Clear, very the clear second question. one is a governance one. Um, if their governments are changing, they may even take off the policy of yes. preventing environmental damage. How yep. do we deal with this? Look at Brazil. Okay, uh, Stefan, and then over there. There's, a, there's a currently this change in project design, a trend in research on living labs, and I would like the, the real life experiments, and I would really go for it, and I go, would like to ask you, what do you think? I think it is really that we have to change our mind also towards not testing and doing this project design, what we, all, what we always have in a traditional way. I think we have to open our mind and to, to in the inclusion of people in real life experiments mm -hmm. would be a lot better. And I don't see it that often also in the in the yeah. research agenda. Yeah, very good point. FES and Pranab, they're actually, that's what they're doing all the time, but we need to do more of those. We have two questions over there, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, after what has been said yesterday. Please, your name and- uh, My name is Daniel Gallo Concha. I come from uh, Kaiserslautern und Bonn. Um, after what has been said yesterday about complexity many times, after what our colleagues have mentioned also about complexity and what uh, Claudia has wrapped up, seems that the obvious thing is methodological. Why is not the methodological thing obvious in the agendas of the, of the doers, of the actors? Why is well known that the only way to address complexity is through systemic approaches or there are systemic tools to do that? Why is not in the agenda? I'm very curious, thanks. Because it's complex, that's why. But the other, <laughs> sorry, behind you. Uh, and then the very last one, and then we really have to stop. Questions. Hi, thank you. Um, Eva Goldman from FIBA, Research Institute of Organic Agriculture, Switzerland. Um, my question goes to Stephen and Felicitas. Um, well, when we look at these um, recent um, very negative reports on uh, Vera or West, uh, all these things, um, I am wondering, um, what can be done to ensure that, um, leaving complexity aside, these carbon um, offsetting programs are actually able to achieve simple, quantifiable 
um, carbon results, whether that is whether there's a way outside of um, just stronger political regulations or um, stronger scientific validation of these approaches that are used. Yeah, yeah. And there was one very last one right here. Yes, hello, my name is Claudia Redich from TH Köln. And I have one question because the term biodiversity popped up at some times. And I remember very old um, publication by GIZ, Payment for Ecosystems for Biodiversity Conservation. And today we did not hear so much about lessons learned with that. But is it not, especially for agricultural purposes, purposes, if we want to transform, should we not better consider that? Yeah. So we spoke of conservation in terms of water, in terms of carbon, but I heard then that there was uh, one plan to better consider also biodiversity conservation in these uh, plant uh, activities. But I think it would be really nice if you would hear more about payment for ecosystem services for biodiversity conservation. Mm -hmm. It's complex, it's not easy to measure, mm -hmm. but it would be great. Yeah, I guess one thing is if you focus on carbon, soil carbon, trees, water, take care of some biodiversity. Uh, but yeah, I'm not aware of the publication, so I'm not sure if Felicitas does. No, maybe not. Um, yeah, but it's, it's still, I think it's a, it's a research agenda as well. Okay, oh, good. So we, we have our final answer round, and this is your last chance also to bring in research agenda. You can start with the biodiversity one, urban, ecosystem services, what happens if governments change, systemic risks, uh, systemic modeling, given these uh, interconnected situations. Feel free to address what you can address in one minute, one and a half. <laughs> Thank you for the help, additional help. <laughs> No, there are payment for ecosystem services. I mean, focusing on biodiversity, mainly in Africa, they are documented. So there are, but yeah, but there is more prominence on water and carbon. And also I'm, I'm aware of one case that is about paying for agrobiodiversity. And that was uh, recognizing the conservation of native potatoes in the Andes in, in Latin America. So there are some cases, but yes, are not the more prominent ones. Uh, regarding uh, I, I, I wanted to make a uh, comment regarding the public um, versus public versus private uh, sources of funding. I think it's an important conversation because what we have seen in the practice is that many payment for ecosystem services that reach maturity, they started with private support. So private support or support from international cooperation that kind of absorbed that first loss. And that was important to start triggering the process and understand how to, to put this up. But then the public funding become very important to give sustainability and recurrency of, uh, in the payments. So that's why it's important to start seeing how we can unlock public funding in specific countries, depending on the different financial instruments that they have to put into payment for ecosystem services to give more uh, permanence to the, to the payments that are given to the farmers. Thank you. Um, regarding the question on the recent reports um, on the on the um, criticism on the designs like Vera, um, we've of course also seen that, and um, we, I mean, there it's about really making sure that you're designing your programs using the highest certification schemes that really focus on avoiding these kind of um, mishaps. I think there's a lot of challenges in um, how to implement and correctly 
set up carbon certification schemes that actually work and you can also do a lot of things wrong. Um, we have uh, an experience with a carbon uh, certification project um, in, in Eastern Africa, where we also published lessons learned on how to avoid um, mishaps in, in these uh, programs. And I think that's um, the first publication I would like to point you to. Um, and yeah, it's really about um, the, the biggest standards, the best standards out there that you, that you ensure these don't happen. And so the last points from our online participants also, you know, either comment on one of the questions or tell us, you know, one research area that we have to focus on to overcome these challenges that we've heard about. Who wants to start, Pranab? Do you want to start? Yeah, thank you. Uh, just quick, quickly responding to the biodiversity thing. Just recently, Vera is finalizing a biodiversity uh, credit thing. They call nature credit. We're looking at one hectare of area uh, around biodiversity zero to one scale. So people can look at that where there were, the biodiversity market is coming up. Regarding the research agenda, uh, particularly the way we're working with FES is uh, trying to see if we can bring in some kind of community or supply side things into the through participatory action research particularly the way you know the point around, around additionality uh, for the conservers how, how we ensure that how we look at most of the methodology that vera user plan view used are developed by again a colonial mindset and a knowledge mindset which is not local so i think this methodology needs to be also revisited and can you have methodologies which is looking at local silviculture which is looking at in the context of forest uh, local practices and management practices Similarly, MRV and building local capacity, because in many cases we see a fair share is not coming to community because most of the consultant and intermediaries which have crowded the market like cowboys, they are taking out bigger share. So how can we enhance more share to the community? How can we involve community in developing methodologies from their knowledge system? And how can we ensure that uh, uh, when communities conserve the forest, this would be treated as additionality? I think these are the some research questions we are looking at. Thank you. Excellent research agenda. So Amos and Steve, you have one sentence each, please. Yeah. Go ahead, Amos. Uh, we would like research in carbon, in, in not in, only in carbon, but benefit sharing. Because there is no much research there you can go and look for and know which one is the best benefit sharing mechanism. So those are the challenges we have in, in place. Excellent. And Steve? Yeah, I think we have to remind ourselves that this architecture of PES is designed to serve emitters and not those who are asking to actually sequester carbon. We have to turn that all upside down. And we start by really confronting our biases. We actually don't have confidence in what people do in managing their forests. And so we you know, create these incentives and so on that give us confidence that they're gonna do the right thing. When in fact, they're doing the right thing most of the time. And so I'm suggesting really a focus on investment in helping people do what they're doing. If it evolves at some point to uh, local uh, uh, interest in set-aside programs, that's fine. And there can be enough efforts to uh, facilitate that, but it, we should really have an investment approach based on an understanding of these are social ecological systems. Systems, perfect, which gets us back to the systems approach. And with that, we're closing this second CGR seminar on food system resilience. I think it's an important aspect, PS schemes. 
but there's still a lot to be done. So thanks to everyone in the audience. Thanks to all of our speakers in person, online for this excellent discussion today.